CC Growth Journeys from Emerging Ecosystems to Global Markets. Everybody types in a unique and different way. The timing between the keys, of pressing the keys, and how long you keep each key pressed, and how you move your phone around while you're typing on a phone. All of those things are sort of like a voice of the way you type. And it's incredible, but people type almost in the same way all the time. Rose company Typing DNA knows who you are as you type. Space is called Typing Biometrics, and the goal is to continuously authenticate people as they type on their mobile phones and computers. And believe me, the need is skyrocketing these days. Typing DNA started in Romania, but expanded to the US and extracted capital from top tier funds. In this episode, we'll learn about the typing biometrics market, get tips and tricks for fundraising in the US, and learn why Raul chose New York over Silicon Valley. Let's jump right in. Hello, Raul. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Great, great. Thanks. Um, Are you in Bucharest or New York right now? I'm in uh, New York. Actually, technically, I'm in Brooklyn. So you relocated there when? I uh, relocated at the beginning of this year. Yeah, I've been back and forth for years now, and I decided to move permanently because we are growing a a team here as well. And also like investors and clients are in the U.S., so it's it's good to be be in the U.S. as well. Mm -hmm. I think it makes sense for companies um, like yours going for the U.S. market. uh, It makes sense that the founder or co-founders um, do the move to the U.S. so that they're closer to their market, they can fundraise easily, they can attract better talent, uh, they can be closer to their customers and also um, closer to their potential acquirers. So um, good move. I'll ask you about New York, though. I'll come to that. But first of all, can you please tell us a bit about yourself and your background before you started typing DNA? I think I'm entrepreneur at heart. I really like a lot of things and I never settle on just doing one thing. So I'm not the employee kind of person that uh, wants to go to job like nine to five and do one single job, you know, their entire life. always wanted to do something more meaningful, to do a lot of things that are interesting. Like, for example, I really like statistics and, you know, machine learning, but also like programming, also like psychology and philosophy and those kind of things. So I kind of want to put all this together and do something, you know, greater than me as doing just one of those. Not everybody's like that. So I try to sort of figure out what to do professionally. I've been a programmer for a while and then like an engineer and then product manager. And meanwhile, I co-founded a few other startups and I helped found other startups that I, friends of mine started and so forth. So kind of, I, I kind of like this founder sort of entrepreneur, you know, position. And I feel that what I'm doing at Typing DNA, I sort of did before, like forever, but then sort of different approach. I mean, we don't have many serial entrepreneurs in Central Eastern Europe or Turkey, but you are one of those guys who have been in the startup world for almost maybe even more than 15 years now before you started Typing DNA. Um, just for our audience to know, can you please tell us what Typing DNA does? Yeah, so um, we look at how people type at computers and mobile phones and use the timing between the keys and how long you press the keys, but also mobile phones, how you move your phone around while you're typing. We use that information to authenticate people. And we use that information as a biometric. Basically, there are over 20 different use cases that we support. Some use cases are, you know, authentication, fraud prevention, identity management, all sorts of things like that. 
pretty much everywhere where you would use a fingerprint or face or any other biometric, mm-hmm. you can use typing DNA. And you just look at how people type uh, certain things and not what they type, but how they type it, like the typing patterns. And then based on those typing patterns, you can do all sorts of things. So that's what we do. We have a platform for typing biometrics, and we work with uh, companies in the fraud prevention space and also identity access management space. Uh, we have a number of companies and uh, the student verification sort of use case, which is also called proctoring, online proctoring, those kind of things. Cool. Um, just to dump it down for the audience. So what you guys do is as I type um, anything that can be my password, that can be me using Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp, um, you authenticate me and it works on both uh, desktop and mobile, right? Think about it like a voice of the way you type. So everybody types in a unique and different way. The timing between the keys, uh, pressing the keys and how long you keep each key pressed and how you move your phone around while you're typing on a phone. All of those things are sort of like a voice of the way you type. And it's incredible, but people type almost in the same way all the time. It's different, but it's still the same. So very well-trained algorithm is able to distinguish whether it's the same person or not. And this is really crazy. This is something that inspired me to start this. The fact that we can actually do this, I think is incredible. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of authentication solutions out there. I mean, this is a very, very mature market. Who are some of your indirect competitors who are more, let's say, generalist in the space? And who are some of your direct competitors who are also trying to cover um, typing biometrics? Yeah, so authentication is a big space and very interesting space, a space in which you see a lot of uh, new startups and new ideas trying to figure out the next better mousetrap for fraud and you know how to, to get people in and verify them continuously, all those things. There are a number of companies that may be considered competitors, like companies in the behavioral biometric space, like companies like Biocache or BehaviorSec. We don't consider them competitors. We, I sort of go by the um, this framework, you know, popularized by Clayton Christensen. The jobs to be done. Basically, a company competes with companies or things that help do the same job. So. We verify people when they type, but that doesn't mean we compete with other companies that verify people when they do something, including typing. I think some use cases with companies that don't seem to be, there are competitors of ours, like 2FA that is done through like SMS OTP or like, um, you know, authenticator or other methods to do authentication, but also other biometrics that some of the time do the job. For example, when you want to verify a student, when they take an exam, other methods that you would use for like 2FA, for two-factor authentication, you would not have the same value because it will not be enough. Yeah, you know, a student could forward uh, OTP, their one-time password to another person that would take an exam in their place. So you really need a biometric. In that case, you need to have a biometric. So we compete with biometrics. In other cases where we do, let's say, 2FA, we compete with other methods for two-factor authentication. And there's so many things uh, in which we compete with different companies. Because this this field seems to be already incredibly condensed, a lot of companies in the space, I think there's, there's a small insight I can give you about this. Um, there's this new concept, it's 10 years old already, but uh, it was not implemented so far to a great extent, uh, called CARTA. It's basically about you know authenticating people continuously and passively and, um, you know, Make sure you do this adaptively so with the method that you have at hand. 
This is very, very important because, and this, this concept was done by Gartner and Gartner thinks that they did a lot of surveys and, you know, Fortune 500 companies, big enterprise companies. And they know that today Carta is implementing less than 5% of the companies. And by 2023, it will be 80% of companies in the consumer space and over 50% of companies in the enterprise space that will already have a card approach in place. That means that people will be authenticated all the time while they're doing anything into, in any platform. And in that respect, the fact that we're typing all the time, we're communicated to typing, it's not just when you type in like your username and password, but you, when you type anything, um, this thing makes typing DNA one of the most important factors to use in a card approach. So what I'm saying is that authentication as a space is huge, but it's moving towards this card approach and it's moving very, very fast because, especially because of the COVID crisis and the fact that people are working from home and enterprise are not that well secure when somebody is accessing, you know, data and also the assets from remote. So they need this card approach. So I think this is one thing in authentication that will take over. And a lot of companies in authentication, building solutions for authentication, are not prepared to serve this market. And also a lot of companies uh, outside that want to use the solutions don't have a lot of options. So I think we fit very, very well there. And I think this is a new ocean that is being created as, as, as we speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, what resonates with me really well is there are a lot of use cases for typing DNA. In some of those use cases, you are complementing um, different authentication solutions. You're becoming an extra layer to make it more secure. Um, in some of the use cases, you might be competing with them or potentially replacing them. But then there are these wide range of use cases, um, which you've said correctly, passive authentication, where the, there are these new use cases that are opening up um, as we move forward, as it gets easier and more seamless to authenticate people in a more secure way. And that's what makes uh, typing DNA really exciting. Uh, can you please tell us what, where do you stand right now from a traction perspective? You can tell me either in terms of number of customers, MRR, authentication volume, whatever you can disclose. No, we were not able to disclose all those numbers uh, or most of the numbers. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that we we had record numbers in March. You know, uh, March was really, really good compared to any other month before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and April was much better than March. Things are not just growing like 10%. Things are going like crazy. <laughs> I was just talking with my management team like an hour ago, and we're overwhelmed with the number of companies that want to use our technology. So I think we sort of see a step in demand. One is because, as I told you, a lot of people are working from home, learning from home, doing all things from home, and they want to be, and the companies or the applications that they're using uh, need to be secured. Mm-hmm. So a way to do that is to look at how people type. And using typing DNA is maybe the right thing. Another thing is the fact that, you know, a year ago, for example, in the identity access management space, we were working with one of the 15 companies in the Gartner Quadrant uh, with Optimal IDM. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we're working with half of them. And we're making progress to work with about, you know, 70, 80% of them. Actually, everyone wants a piece of this everyone wants to have typing biometrics you know in their platform Mm -hmm. and even if some of these guys develop their own technology most of these guys that they don't want to use it because ours is better and they tried it and they like it and they wanted to go forward with it and uh, like it's crazy we're becoming like uh, a preferred vendor in the space and there's really no competitor at this point that does the same thing 
everyone that seems to be a competitor because they have a similar solution, they're competitors with everyone else in the space. So nobody wants to use their solution other than their themselves and their clients. Mm-hmm. And what we do, we, instead of having that approach, we have like a horizontal approach. We work with everybody so everybody can use our technology. So everybody, initially they wanted to differentiate and started to use us. And now they want to be like the same with everybody else because they understand that we're like mm-hmm. the preferred vendor. And this is seen as an increasing the amount of, you know, pilots and POCs from all sorts of like companies like that. Then we have, um, Generally speaking, I cannot tell you exactly the number of, you know, clients, MRR, those kind of things, but they're growing like crazy. And the reason for that is that we already are seen as a preferred vendor, whereas a year ago we were not. Of course, um, you know, the, the last funding round also helped for visibility. And there were a few things that we did last year and the beginning of this year, especially the launch of the mobile technology that we have, which is really, really cool. And these sort of changed our, our speed and, and, and demand for, for our technology. Interesting. I'll come to your funding round later. Um, but I mean, you're one of those companies who are affected positively uh, by COVID-19. It's not only the workers going remote, but everyone is going remote. Uh, Patients are going remote. Um, Construction workers are going remote. So all that going remote um, affects positively to typing DNA. Um, As a company who needs uh, forward-looking early adapters, because you were one of the first um, comers with the technology, you're maybe one of the few companies that are only focused on typing biometrics. A lot of new competitors are popping up, but you guys are like four or five years ahead of them. Um, You needed to be in the US. And although back then you were based in Romania, you now did the bold move. And one of those gates uh, before you did the move was you joining Techstars New York um, back in, I guess, three years ago, 2017. How was that experience? Yeah, I think uh, you're mostly right. I think in order to make, to be successful in what what we're doing, um, you cannot do this from Europe and only from Europe. I was involved in other technology, especially around advertising before Mm -hmm. and media and not, those as well are not, you cannot do that from Europe unless you're focusing on it regionally. But US was always like 50% of the revenues in previous companies that uh, involved in. Hmm. So I knew that like you have to sort of conquer US if you want to have success in the world. And it's not just con- conquer it from like a revenue. You can't make a point for like US companies to use your technology regardless of what you're doing. In our case, typing biometrics it's really probably you're not going to be a global company. So for me, it made sense once we have the technology to go and learn from the best. And TechSearch New York is probably the, the, the best opportunity that we had at that point. A few other opportunities we probably would have taken, like maybe Y Combinator or like TechSearch and Boulder or in Boston as well. Those are really really good good ones as well mm-hmm. a few other accelerator uh, like that you know we do the same thing like 500 startups and a few others right but so for us Texas New York was uh, a help in that direction understanding the the US market and you know making the move towards global through you know US I highly recommend to every European startup doing that mm-hmm. Makes sense. But now you're based in New York. Um, your executive team is based in New York, but your technology team is in Romania. In fact, in two offices in Bucharest and then in Oradea. What are the advantages of hiring people back in Romania? And what are some of the disadvantages or the struggles um, that you're facing? Yeah, well, it's much it's much cheaper to have people in Romania, obviously. 
Mm-hmm. But then if you are from Europe and you know that, you know, European people are actually quite clever and quite smart and, you know, they have this hacker mentality, especially Romanians, then you kind of, you know, have all the reasons to work with, you know, Europeans and not work with U.S. people, which are super expensive. But on the, you know, the opposite What I've seen is that, you know, people in like U.S. have a different mentality when they're thinking about clients. Mm -hmm. And that really helps in, you know, creating a better product, better approach, better support, better sales, better marketing and all those things. Really, really important. I think these are both true. You have some people that, you know, are better built in U.S. and some people are better built in Western Europe or Eastern Europe so forth. We have two offices, one in Bucharest, which is the capital city of Romania, and where where you see a lot of very well-trained people in other domains than just engineering, while the other team is in Oradia, where actually uh, is a small city, but uh, you do have great pool of talent, especially when it comes to engineering. So we basically have our R&D in Oradia. I am from Oradia, and my co-founders are from Oradia, so that's where we started. But then Bucharest has, you know, more talent and definitely more diverse talent. So it was fair for us to have those two offices. And then U.S. Uh, really brings that flavor that kind of, you know, I think you you can't, if you're really smart, I think you can do without a U.S. office or U.S. people. But you really have to sort of focus on, on understanding the U.S. market. That's really important. And it's easy is easy to be done if you have, you know, US people as well in the in the team, right? It's one of the steps um of Americanizing a company and you with fifteen years of startup experience and uh, with your previous companies generating fifty percent, if not more, of their revenue from the US market, um, you were already accustomed to the culture in the US. But your team in Bookers and then Oridea might be struggling with American way of doing things. They might be struggling with the culture. So what are some of the measures that you take to sustain the culture across different offices and to um, Americanize the company from bottoms up? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I think there are multiple questions in this. Maybe we're not really trying to Americanize the company. We're trying to sort of make sure that everybody kind of understands, you know, global citizens have other needs and other, you know, priorities and decide differently about things. Um, that's very, very important. I think some of the values that we have internally, maybe the, one of the most important one is the, the fact that we're, we're very honest. We're trying to, to sort of always, you know, recompensate honesty and Mm -hmm. critical approach. So if somebody thinks, you know, very logically about something, even if it's against, you know, what the management thought before or something like that. They're definitely appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for a startup, it's really important to, to, you know, have that sort of humbleness to understand that, you know, maybe the startup would not be here without me as a main founder, for sure. I mean, uh, or like first employees or first investors and so forth. But I think it can not go further from here if we don't accept everyone else who's in the team and their input. So <laughs> the way we do it is we're very, very honest. We discuss everything. We have sometimes uh, really lengthy, lengthy discussions instead of, you know, very short and directive ones. But that helps everyone to sort of align with our vision by giving them the opportunity to comment on it and, you know, 
come up with you know their ideas and use their logic and ask us whatever they they want or you know give suggestions and so forth and basically we allow the company to go to more or less in the direction that makes more sense for the team in some situations i've seen that the team drives the company or the whole goal to a different direction than the one that we should take i think especially true about restaking i think Employees in general, or people who choose to be employees in general for a while at least, they're more risk adverse. Um, whereas entrepreneurs are more able to take risk, especially calculated risks. And I think in some of these decisions, you want people that have more entrepreneurial mind. Mm-hmm. It's good to have, you know, employees as part of the, the culture and the discussions and make sure you, you let them say whatever they want and, you know, help them be heard. I think that's very, very important. Interesting. Um, I think humbleness is like your number one priority because um, like when we met two years ago, in fact, um, Typing DNA is one of our anti-portfolio companies. I mean, we've met a couple of years ago. It was hard for us to build conviction outside their own geography. We had access to great deals and then we missed on them, um, which is pure, poor judgment, not being able to build conviction from far away, et cetera, et cetera. There are many reasons for it. But, and then we met again last year in a dinner and you were there speaking with, another investor who was asking you questions and you were reluctantly replying to them. You were reluctant because you have just raised your round, but no one knew about it. And then um, you sounded a bit too cocky, but then you (laughs) felt bad about it. And then you said, look, I'm not a cocky person. I might be the most humble person you'll ever meet. I just don't need your money right now, Uh, which was really amusing to me. Yeah, the round was not really closed back then, but we had our lead uh, investor decided. So it was like... Almost finished the round, yes. And, uh, almost there, yeah. yeah. Um, you raised $7 million, um, and that was a couple years after Techstars. So my first question is going to be, did you have problems fundraising in the U.S. right after Techstars? Uh, what were some of the VCs that you're speaking with or the angel investors that you're speaking with telling you? Why didn't they invest um, early on? I think we were, you know, very honestly, I think we were on top of our batch. Maybe not the best one, maybe top three, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, of, a, of a 12 companies batch mm-hmm. in terms of, I mean, in all terms. And I think bigger minus that we have, I was that we, and we, we had uh, afterwards uh, towards raising was the fact that we were not U.S. citizens, uh, that we were coming from like East, East Europe. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. And I think that's a big, a big minus. But if you do like something really, really well, or people are amazed, about some of the things that you're doing, like, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, um, the things that we're doing amazes people, like they're inspired and they, they want to show other people what, you know, the fact that you can actually be authenticated by the way you type, those kind of things. And we're, when we talk with people that are, you know, amazed by the technology, it's sort of easy to get the discussion going towards whatever, you know, whether you want to sell them something or whether you want to get investment, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think a big minus was the fact that we were from Eastern Europe and Europe in general. I think U.S. investors were not previously very open to investing in European companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did some of the things that made sense for us. Just, you know, move here, took some angel investors from U.S. first, then, you know, went for like bigger funds, uh, discussing with bigger funds and so forth. But I think that's a big, big minus for European startups in general, or used to be. 
Nowadays, I think it changes. I think more and more investors from US, they invest in companies from Europe, especially if they're like uh, flipped in a dollar corporation, something like that. So you do have to, you do want to have like a structure that is, you know, converts you as a US company. So they have control from like a legal perspective. They understand it's not full control. It's just like can, you know, can work better with the company if it's, you know, US company. And then you can have your entire team in Europe. I think that can work. I don't know. That's, that's really, really hard. And even if you get investment from Europe, let's say, so we, we got some investment from Romania. If they want to make money, right? These investors, they also, you know, support companies going west. Yeah. Or to US or to like, basically, there's no way you can just stay in your country or in your region and grow to like a billion dollar company. There's no way to do that. If you want to grow and be global, you have to think global and you have to mm-hmm. learn how to work with US investors. And, you know, it's it's a very complicated game, I think. And I think um, yeah. not a lot of uh, European startups understand this and not a lot of uh, European founders, um, you know, are ready to take the risk and, and, and do this. Mm-hmm. I feel like more and more um, U.S. investors are investing into Europe. Uh, U.S. investors are investing into international founders. But one of the problems that we also see at Five Fund Startups is after these um, international founders like yourself uh, go through our program and they're trying to raise one or two million dollars seed round, they struggle. But after that round, if they can actually raise that somehow, either through angels or local VCs from Europe, etc., um, then they build on traction. And once they build traction and they go to raise let's say a five to $10 million round, it becomes way easier because you have the numbers to show for, at least you have something that to prove. Um, also, you have the financial resources. So you as a founder can make the move to the US or employ your chief revenue officer, chief sales officer, whatever in the US, which would even further Americanize the company and make it more easier for the US investors to jump on board. So you raised um, $7 million and those, you know, your investors include some local investors like Gapminder and Gekad. Um, some Central European investors, some Western European investors, and obviously then Gradient Ventures. How did you put all of those people from Central Europe, Western Europe, and US into the same round? I think it's not that that hard. I think uh, in our seed, so previously, before the USA in our seed, we did something that we were taught very well by Alex Iskol from Texas, New York. Mm-hmm. He sort of explain that if you want to build a successful round and you want to be to have you know to limit the risk as much as possible that is only one way to do that and you have to take money from investors and first you have to take money from a lot of angel investors Mm -hmm. so you basically start with lower checks like 20 25k from angel investors and then once you build uh, a momentum and you have a small chunk of the money or then you go to larger investors and then when you have like half of it then you go to larger investors and so forth some companies some companies have the luxury to have like a big investor very upfront who wants to invest you know most of the round or even entire round sometimes but i think that is rare and that is prone to luck if 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 you don't have the luck to close around like that, then you're out of luck. <laughs> you're you're dying as a startup. So it's not a strategy. It's like a hope. It's a hope strategy. It's not a real strategy. It means that you want to try to control the outcome. So going after smaller checks first, it's much better a much better strategy. I did this at seed, and then at 
USA, I sort of did that a little bit as well, but not because I, I needed small amounts of money. Uh, I didn't didn't need that anymore, but I learned so much from angel investors that were in our uh, seed round. I wanted to have more people involved that even with smaller checks that will help us in the future. And, you know, in my opinion, I would take as many angel investors as possible. I think it's and it's great to, to talk with them. Now we have over 30 and, you know, different investors. And it's so satisfying to talk with all these people and get their feedback whenever we want to do anything. And some people are really good on some things. Other people are good on other things. So depending on the type of advice I want, I can go to different people. Of course, I can always go to Gradient or like our major investors. But having angel was really valuable, I think. Your question was not about this, but this is this is sort of how it happened. Mm-hmm. In our Series A, it didn't happen like that. So we, we we didn't have like a first investor before we had Gradient. So basically, we were open for discussions, but not for raising, not necessarily for raising. And then we met uh, Gradient and they, it was sort of a very good match with them. We, we both had sort of, you know, we decided to, we have to do it now. It, it makes tons of sense for us, for them and seem to be seem to be the right approach and i think it was the right approach yeah i think that's an amazing tip by the way um the tip that you got from techstars new york um is to go to angels first get those small tickets have more people involved have more people incentivized uh, with the company's success um, which would hopefully ease your way to even bigger tickets which would lead to hopefully bigger tickets i mean that's how the startup and the vc value chain basically works um before we move to the three quick fire questions what i want to ask you is why New York? How did you come to that decision? I mean, obviously, my question is why not Bay Area, but I'm sure you have some um, logical explanation to that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just just to, just uh, just one a few more seconds on on the previous question. Sure. So your question was also why how we how we got investors from different regions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think because we were in different regions ourselves. So we had having, you know, Demi Romania make make us prone to talk with investors that understand the region and also have we have a great demand in the financial world in Europe, uh, you know, the whole Europe. And makes sense uh, to talk with some Central Eastern Europe uh, investors as well. That's why we have some investors from there. We think that they really can be of help. And then, you know, the US ones make total sense for us as a global company and to grow. Why New York? I think New York is very, very important for European startups and European founders. I think it's really, really hard to have a, an office in Europe and an office in U.S. Mm-hmm. if the office in U.S. is on the other coast, if it's in San Francisco or something like that, because you will not have enough overlap. Previously, with a company called Banner Snack, we, we had an office in San Francisco, and it was really, really hard to have a communication going between the two offices. It was really hard. It was a pain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you need like two, three hours at least of overlap with, you know, the other office that you have in the U.S. And we found that that's crucial. So New York, it's probably the best. Also because we're selling to a lot to the finance and enterprise world. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually there are tons of developers. We're developer first, but a lot of developers are in the in New York area. 
It's not like, you know, they have their stuff developed in Silicon Valley. It's not true. They develop here and they develop in Atlanta. They develop in Austin. They develop in so many other places. But I think in New York, you have developers that work in the finance industry and in the security industry and in the enterprise industry a lot. And then you have decision people. And then you have overlap with Europe. And then you have um, a culture that works very, very well with our Romanian culture, a little bit more upfront, a little bit critical, a bit honest, uh, because people don't have an, you know time to be polite. Whereas in you know Silicon Valley, people are more polite. I, I actually like that. I like the Silicon Valley way of doing things. But I think it's not in our... It's not in our culture to be that polite. And I think a startup should be more... In order to grow fast, you sort of be very upfront and sort of sometimes you stab each other on the food and stuff like that. So I think sort of like New York is a much better approach, I think. And I've seen others. I've seen other startups uh, from Europe that moved move here. And I think they did great, uh, including like the Romanian UiPath, <laughs> the Romanian uh, company. It makes sense because now you're um, in a much closer culture and you're closer to your market. And of course, you're closer to your other offices in Bucharest, so it makes perfect sense. Um, let's jump to the three quick fire questions. Um, so my first question is, let's say you're not allowed to work for a year and you can live anywhere you want. Um, which city would that be? I'm sure the answer isn't New York. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure it's going to be a city. So it really depends whether I can travel or not. If I can travel, maybe I will live in a, in a place that has a very close airport from where I can travel anywhere. So probably New York is not a bad idea if I can travel. If I cannot travel, then I would go in a very, I don't know, probably a mountainside, maybe like Tirol, like Australian Alps or like uh, Switzerland Alps or um, the Rocky Mountains. I don't know. I really like the mountain. And I think I, I always wanted to take a sabbatical. That's actually something that I always wanted to do. And I started typing DNA after I started my sabbatical. So I started my sabbatical three days later, I was working on typing DNA. So I actually secretly planned for like 10 years or so what I would do for a year if I would not work. Uh, and I was thinking of this, you know, for a while until like four years ago when we started typing DNA. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think, I mean, if you categorize people into different buckets, um, there are the beaches kind of people, they want to go to Bahamas or um, Bali, whatever. Then there are the city kind of people, they might say New York or, Lon or London, and then there are the mountain kind of people. I think you've perfectly fit into the mountain bucket. <laughs> uh, my second question is, if you had to rename typing DNA, yeah. what would that name be? I think that's a really hard question. I would pay a premium to get typing DNA <laughs> if that would be already taken. There was one company with a really similar name to yours um, from Central Europe. I don't remember their name. Uh, do you? Yeah, yeah Keystroke DNA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think they copied us. Uh, they copied the name because they, they liked our name and they, they looked for the closest one. Yeah, yeah. that's that's why I think they, they did that. I think it's really the best name that we could use and even like four years after or like six years after they actually bought the domain like we we keep buying uh, domain names like we have tens of domain names now about anything around the technology and anything like that we, we do buy them mm -hmm. um just just to make sure that other people don't buy them and you know even to avoid confusion and stuff like you know for example voice dna or you know talking dna those kind of things we, we buy them even if we don't want to do them we don't want to have you know competition in those area that are that uh, is named by us in a way. 
So we were thinking about all sorts of names, and then I think I never we never came up with anything that is you know better than typing DNA. And we see this at conferences and everywhere we go, like people understand immediately what we're doing. It's incredible. I mean, they they know very very fast what we're doing just based on the name. <laughs> I definitely think it's a great name. I would not change that. Maybe not the right answer, but I would not change that. <laughs> no, it, it's great that you're in love with the name because, I mean, you're going to be with it for a while, <laughs> hopefully. Um, last question is, if you had to donate your whole net worth into one private company, what would that be? Well, that's that's a clever question. I think, you know, I, it's, it's a very hard, hard answer. I mean, first, I don't think I would donate everything, just, you know, especially to a private company. So one company that you believe in their cause and the mission and the impact that they create in the world? I think a private company should get investors uh, enjoyed about what they're doing. And if they cannot do that, then, you know, they have to, you know, find money from clients or like self-fund that. I think, you know, getting donations to found a private company is not the way to go, honestly. But I would probably donate to like family sort of startups maybe or like friends those kind of i, I think I, if i'm gonna be like one of the three f's then probably i will not care about the outcome i would just do it because you know to support the people that i that i love that i that i you know friends family those kind of things i would just do it for them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know and if probably if i'm like terminally ill those kind of things maybe i would not care about you know what happened to my <laughs> fortune whatever <laughs> great Perfect. Well, um, thanks for joining the podcast and hopefully let's meet again in New York or Bucharest or Oradea or Istanbul, wherever. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much. I think it was really cool the, uh, podcast and also your questions are very insightful and made me. Thank you very much. Raul's strategy around fundraising in the U.S. really resonated with me. As an outsider, it is tough to look for a VC fund who will be convicted enough to lead you around. What's smarter is to get a bunch of smaller ticket investors, have more people incentivized by your success while you Americanize the company, and then go for a larger round. Typing DNA is sadly one of our anti-portfolio companies. It is not situated as a market leader in a rapidly growing space. Let's see where they end up. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com, or follow us at getcc on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube.